Well, you can see from the outline that I want to talk to you this morning about 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, which is one of the list of qualifications for elders in the church and leaders. And I also want to begin, though, by looking at Acts chapter 14, 21 to 23, so you could begin by turning there, if you would. And I'm going to speak to you about aspiring to graceful leadership in the church. The reason this became an important topic for me is because at our church where I'm one of the elders, which I, by the way, responded to after a year of pleading from the pastor to become an elder. This is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about becoming an elder and a leader in the church. Um, But we couldn't find any men who wanted to step up and become leaders in our church. And it was a difficult thing. And so I wanted to clarify for men in the church why this is an important thing to consider and ask three questions about it. So I wanted to have us consider as well, how can we honestly answer the call to be blameless, which Paul lists as the umbrella term in 1 Timothy 3? And how can we urge as congregation people, our men to aspire to leadership in the church? And then how can our assessment of ourselves be balanced and honestly considered when we look at what Paul is listing as qualifications for elders. Let me flesh that out for you a little bit more. How can a man who acknowledges the reality of his sinfulness and realizes his need for Jesus to save him from his sin honestly enter the call to lead God's people blamelessly? How can you wives and children, and all of us together as members of this congregation, help the men of this congregation to aspire to lead in the capacity that Paul asks of us. And then thirdly, in light of the qualifications Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3, how can our assessment of ourselves be balanced when we consider what the qualifications are that Paul lists? And so the standard set in the New Testament for the eldership is high. But in all of this, Paul was making the standard for being an elder normative and worth our consideration, not esoteric or unattainable by anyone. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, let's consider the passage. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, those are often interchangeably used, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Amazing statements there, isn't it? So my main focus this morning is to encourage you men to be balanced in your self-assessment as you consider the great challenge that Paul has put forth for anyone desiring to be a leader in Christ's church. But I want to first introduce to you the subject of elders by looking at three main concerns that Paul required of the elders as he first began to establish churches. His highest priority he mentions in Acts chapter 14, 21 to 23. It says there, when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city, which was Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lustra and to Iconium and to Antioch to focus on these three things. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let me note a few things. We learn from Titus 1 that Paul and Barnabas set in order that which was lacking so that the highest priority on their list to establish the church was the appointment of elders in every city. Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel at every opportunity, it says, throughout the city. It was through the preaching that they were making new disciples. And then Paul and Barnabas set about to secure competent spiritual oversight for those assemblies, but with no indication as to the process by which they went about about selecting these elders. And that may have been because they were confident that God would carry on the good work in the elders that they had appointed. And so they left the spiritual maturing of those elders to the work of God. This choosing of men for spiritual oversight wasn't left to chance or circumstance. It isn't just sort of randomly picking men that are more educated or wealthier than others or more intelligent or have a business background or acumen. But rather men who visibly establish themselves as people of character. That's that's the focus of being an elder, men with established character. So let's examine more closely what Paul had declared were the most important things that these elders were to focus on to establish the churches he and Barnabas had founded. First, the elders were strengthening or establishing the souls of the disciples. They were rendering them more firm and committed to being faithful to the gospel. It shows their commitment to the truth of the gospel. They were setting the souls of the disciples resolutely on the truth of the gospel, encouraging them to trust it with great determination 
helping them to remain firm and steadfastly convinced of its truth, no matter the circumstances they were in. Secondly, they were exhorting them to continue in the faith. They were consoling them. They were comforting them. They were encouraging them in their pursuit of godliness as they continue to be true to their faith and hope in the Lord, making sure to let nothing get in the way of that steadfastness, including tribulations. And finally, they were reminding them that entering the kingdom of God comes through many tribulations. Oppression, ridicule, affliction, distress, finding ourselves squeezed into narrow straits. This is the way we must enter the kingdom of God, Paul said. The word must is literally, it is necessary. It's inevitable. It's a duty to enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. There isn't another way to enter the kingdom of God. This really suggests that it's by God's divine appointment and his design that we enter the kingdom through persecution and affliction. And now we see why the disciples must first set out to establish and confirm them in the faith and exhort them and encourage them in their pursuit of godliness. Because there are many tribulations in life which can distract us and derail us from perseverance in the faith. The noun tribulations appears throughout the New Testament to describe the tribulation of the end time prior to Christ. That's one example of it. The term can also describe the general difficulties and troubles that we experience in everyday life. You'll remember in the parable of the sower, it's because of the kinds of tribulations we have in everyday life that the seed, the word of God, doesn't take root in the heart of the hearer. Because tribulations and adversity of all kinds choke it out. And it's because tribulations choke out the word from taking root in the heart of some believers that the focus was on strengthening and establishing and encouraging them that tribulation was a necessary proponent to entering God's kingdom. And that's why the church continues Sunday after Sunday to establish our faith in the gospel to encourage us to see the value in continuing to pursue a life of godliness godliness amidst the distractions of tribulation. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, let's consider the text more closely now. 1 Timothy 3, 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I think some people may tend to look at this and these requirements rather rigidly and maybe even legalistically, but I'm going to view them as attainable characteristics through God's grace this morning. I like how Paul introduces this passage in verse 1, because as difficult as the requirements appear to be at first examination, 
Paul begins by affirming that desiring to be an elder is a good thing to aspire to. That phrase aspires to is really interesting. If anyone desires to stretch themselves out fully in order to fully grasp something, this is a good thing to aspire to, he says. The Greek word for aspire is related to the word for mountain. Let me help you flesh that out. If you want to be lifted above the valley, if you aspire to move mountains to accomplish difficult, stupendous, incredible things, this is a good and noble, honorable work. Because you are involved in extending God's kingdom here on earth. You're involved in caring for the salvation of the souls whom the Lord purchased with his blood at Calvary. This is a good work to aspire to, but it's a difficult work. I can't tell you of some of the difficulties we've had with people and situations and things that have happened in church that you wouldn't expect. But it's a good thing to work through these, and it's a good thing to set in order the things that are important. I like this introduction Paul uses because following this statement, now he's going to give us a list of the things that must categorize an elder and the things that must not categorize an elder. And the reason I'm focused on the grace of this calling is because these men that have these characteristics are being recognized by the congregation And the congregation is then calling them to take up spiritual oversight of their own lives and to serve the congregation in all humility. This is really all about grace. The elder approaching the congregation with grace and the congregation approaching the elder with grace. They're raising them up to take care that everything in the church is done decently and in good order, working to see that sound doctrine is taught so that godly living can flourish in the congregation. Number three there on your outline, this this passage and others like it are the primary biblical standards and the biblical duties by which the elders must be willing to be assessed by the congregation in order to be able to lead others in spiritual matters. You have to be willing as leaders to be assessed by the congregation as to the gifts and the abilities in your character to lead. And I don't want there to be any unnecessary reservation for any of you men this morning to seriously consider eldership. So the primary qualifications are not that you be greatly gifted or well-educated or the sharpest knife in the drawer, but that we have a consistent personal character. That's the first and the last thing that Paul writes about. Notice in verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the primary emphasis is on the elder's personal life. An overseer must be above reproach amongst those who are around him within the fellowship and a good reputation with those who are outside the congregation and with those among whom he is the most intimate with his own family. 
Notice the word blameless. This is kind of the umbrella term under which all the other character descriptions fall. Notice he doesn't say sinless, but irreproachable, exemplary in his character. And if you're like me at this point, you're probably thinking, I'm not sure I qualify to get beyond the first one here. I actually hesitated for over a year to consider becoming an elder at my pastor's request before I responded, and I was a seminary graduate. I said yes, and then I had the routine concerns about actually meeting the spiritual qualifications that Paul lists. And then my pastor handed me the 20-page application form with questions about the details of my personal life, and I was virtually certain that I couldn't meet the qualifications. And I talked about it with my wife, and she had some questions too. But doubting your ability to fulfill this calling is an important aspect of answering the call to be an elder. You should be worried about any elder that looks at this list and goes, Oh, check, 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 I'm the guy. I think that men who become the best shepherds of those in the congregation are the ones who have a deep and profound sense of their sins and their sinful natures and are profoundly thankful and able to demonstrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ in forgiving the sins of those in the congregation. And in a few minutes, I'm going to explain why that hesitancy and doubting of our capabilities is not only natural, but it's a good thing and a necessary part of this whole process. So when it says that an overseer must be blameless, it means that there should be no blaring, discerning character flaws in the elder. It does not mean that there are no areas left in our lives where we need to grow in grace any longer. It does not mean that. James said in many things we still offend Grace doesn't ever allow us, folks, the luxury to believe we no longer have a sin nature. The elder must be morally upright and serve as an example to the congregation through an exemplary character. And so Paul fleshes out in a little more detail in verse 2 what blamelessness, blamelessness looks like. The first thing he mentions is the married life. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He kind of bunches them all together. He has to be a one-woman kind of a guy. He's referring to an exclusive, permanent, loving relationship between one man and his wife. When we would gather weekly to assess each other as elders in the church where I am an elder. We would bring different things and we would ask each other about how we're doing in our leadership qualifications and in our abilities. And I brought a PDF by Albert Martin to the congregation one day, and Albert Martin is a Presbyterian pastor in Pennsylvania. And he said regarding being a one-woman man, one thing about being married being married doesn't allow you to deceive yourself about how sinless you are. I bet you women, I see women nodding. 
You never knew how carnal you were until you got married. That's the truth. The more intimate your human relationships are, the more potential there is for discovering remaining sin. And wives, let me just mention something to you. Your calling should be to help your husband to see his sinfulness. But don't just point it out to him by posting it on the refrigerator. Just for the sake of pointing it out, because then he'll resent you, won't he? But graciously let him know that your real concern for him is his spiritual growth as the leader that God wants him to be in your family and in God's kingdom. This statement doesn't mean that only those who are married or only men who have children should be considered. The most obvious meaning is that the one who's being called to the eldership will need to be an example in the realm of the biblical norm of absolute faithfulness within the marriage bond. I was on the ECC webpage and I noticed that when it talks about Rob's description, he says that he married his high school sweetheart. That's good, isn't it? And then Paul adds other elements to flesh out what this blamelessness looks like. He talks about moderation. He mustn't drink immoderately. He must not be given to drunkenness. Because then he can't be sober, and he can't be vigilant, and he can't be self-controlled. We've all seen people who have gotten drunk, and it's very embarrassing. This self-control even includes being of sound mind, moderate as to your opinions and your passions, existing within your own senses, discreet, well-ordered in your life, making it a habit of focusing on being well-ordered. Your wives can often help you, gentlemen, with that. So that the whole of this interest in one's Christian character is quite fundamental. The general testimony of Scripture is that my usefulness in the service to God is closely tied with my personal character. So that what I am matters more to God than what I think I'm able to do. How I go about who I am, becoming God's servant, is more important than how gifted I think I am going to be in my service to God. And so inner consistency in my own life is therefore going to be the crucial thing that establishes my usefulness, my, intercon my inner consistency of character. Well then in verses 4 and 5 he says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? When the text says that he must keep his children submissive, it doesn't mean that he somehow secured the grace of their salvation in the hearts of his children. Quite simply, Paul is saying that our family life ought to be a microcosm of the church of Jesus Christ. The children of such an elder should obey him because they respect his wisdom and his maturity and his selfless care for his family and the quality 
of leadership and the example which he is continuously providing for them. This is the qualification for the eldership because that ought to be how we'll be received as elders within the congregation. Paul's point is that if he is not living like that within his own home, there's very little likelihood that he's going to suddenly start to live that way within the church as a leader. Another characteristic that falls under this idea of being blameless is hospitality, being hospitable. It's beyond the home. He must be hospitable. Literally, he must be a lover of strangers, a good host, someone who entertains hospitably. Moreover, he must be well thought of with outsiders, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. The elder must be gentle, meaning patient and forbearing with people, long-tempered and not short-tempered. This is extended not only to our dealings with people and our attitudes towards them, but also to our words when we speak about those people. Notice in verse 11, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And so in our human relationships with those outside of the church, we also need to be an example. It's very damaging to the church when an elder has the reputation within or outside the church for being short or being difficult and annoyingly insensitive to people or slow to understand someone's situation and be gracious towards it. And then Paul also mentions the sphere of financial affairs. I've labeled it there in E, be indifferent to wealth. The elder must be crystal clear that his motives in serving God are not for financial gain. We'd be hard-pressed to agree that this is the concern of most of the television evangelists and teachers we see. He says, not a lover of money. Elders' attitudes towards money must be that of being indifferent to it in that they've learned to live both with it and without it. I can't tell you how many times we've been in dire straits, Sheila and I, and we've passed through those, but it's been a challenge for us. And so when you're passing through those narrow, those narrow financial straits, tighten your belts. Don't live beyond your current means. Don't be people that get into debt. Nothing declares your relationship to materialism more clearly than how you use your finances. Are you living in serious debt? That's one of the questions that was on the form that I filled out. Do you regularly tithe from what God has provided for you? I read that John MacArthur said that when he counsels families, the one thing he asks to see first is their checkbook. If they don't bring the checkbook, there's no counseling happening. We don't talk much about tithing at our church, and I suspect you don't here either, but tithing is, is an act of worship which illustrates our dependence upon God's Providence. It's the thing that we use to meet the salaries of our 
administration and staff. It's how we furnish missionaries across the world. It helps to maintain our facilities so we can come to worship. There's another phrase that Paul uses in Titus 1.7 that's important here. He says, not greedy for gain. Takes this a step further and pleads for total integrity in every area of our financial dealings. This is where the King James Version uses that wonderful phrase, must not be greedy of filthy lucre. The idea is they must not be gaining something financially through shameful behavior. It's vital for us to learn this attitude of absolute integrity with regard to material things. Without such integrity, all we are teaching and saying about our commitment to Christ will lack credibility. Paul says that the elder must not be newly planted. Another concern for elders is their spiritual maturity. Verse 6 says, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Wow. The Greek word recent suggests the meaning of newly planted. It's kind of a horticultural term. A plant has to send down its roots deeply before it can produce fruit convincingly over a long period of time. If someone has only just come into the kingdom of God and only recently come to faith in Christ, that person ought to be allowed time to mature. Regardless of what other gifting he might have that the church feels that it really needs. He says that protecting the sheep with sound doctrine is of critical importance for considering the teaching ability for elders. Paul seems to be suggesting that we should have proven, consistent, well-developed Christian character and proven giftedness to instruct, which comes from being a student of the Word of God. Right? That's the focus of your life, is really understanding the Word of God and how you take some verses and other verses and put it together to make real good sense of what God is teaching. And so the final qualification for the eldership is a teaching ability. It's stated at the end of verse 2, the elder must be able to teach. The reason this is so important is that one of the chief ways in which Leaders will care for God's family is by feeding the flock the Word of God. Peter says to the elders, be shepherds, be pastors of God's flock that is under your care. The greatest task of the shepherd is to protect the sheep and to lead and guide them to green pastures. That's what Psalm 23 is saying. Only as he ensures they have adequate pasture in the Word of God can they be nourished to grow and mature. Therefore, every elder, whether his ministry is public teaching or not, ought to be supremely burdened that the flock is being fed and recognize when it isn't. We ought to be concerned to know that the Word of God, in whatever way it's being ministered, to the congregation is being explained well as it's taken in and understood and applied to our lives. 
we have had one pastor. He's on the rotation out. We, we um, elder for three years, and then we step down for a year, and, and then we're reconsidered. I have a friend who was an elder while I was just beginning. His name is Andy. He never preached. So that isn't what Paul means. But this friend of ours, Andy, was a BSF leader for eight years. He actively disciples younger men in the congregation. He loves to teach children the Bible. He's great one-on-one with children. And it may well be that the elder has an aptitude for explaining and teaching in that one-to-one situation, which is greater than the aptitude of the one who's doing the public preaching. Well, lastly, I have there that they should be people of prayer. Elders should be people of prayer. This is another qualification that isn't included in the passage in 1 Timothy. We find it kind of tucked away in a comment that James makes in his letter in chapter 5. I'm referring to the verse about those who are sick. It says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. It's easy to miss a much more fundamental truth which points to a qualification for elders hidden away here. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Well, why should the sick person call for the elders? They're not doctors. Not because they have some divine gift for healing, but because the person who's sick needs to be prayed for. Who are the praying people in the congregation? They are the pastors and the elders and the deacons. This is another item that will distinguish them. They will be a praying people. That is perhaps a necessary qualification, and it is certainly a fundamental need within any fellowship of God's people. Well, in conclusion, I wanted to, I said at the beginning, I want to help you assess this idea of being blameless and how we can encourage men in the congregation to aspire to the role of elders. And I said that the standard set in the New Testament for eldership is high. But I also said in all this, Paul was making the standard for being an elder normative not unattainable. We're not looking for the specifications of a machine part when we ask elders to step up. And so the issues concerning a biblical view of the eldership need to be seriously considered before someone steps into that leadership role. But do that. Seriously consider it. And so it might be best to simply acknowledge that you aren't ready at this stage of your life to be an elder. I was 64 before I became an elder. We need younger men to step up and do that, become leaders. And so this may not be the time for you to aspire to rise above the valley, to desire to accomplish difficult, stupendous, and incredible things for the kingdom of God. You may have other mountains you're climbing right now. That's okay. There's a great responsibility in leading and guiding the church, but elders lead as sinful people themselves who have great weaknesses too. 
There's nothing special about it. We have sinful weaknesses just like everyone else. But to you men that might still be wrestling with your own responses to the call to eldership, this is a place where I want to give you great comfort. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most influential preachers in the last century, and certainly a supremely gifted person in preaching the Word of God, made this honest and maybe shocking statement about his congregation and his own depravity. He said in a sermon to them once, How can a great man of God approach this calling to leadership blamelessly? He can say these things only because he comes at this calling to lead, because he recognizes the distinction between striving and attaining. He understands the difference between wishing and striving toward the good and wholly doing the good. Paul was continuously resolved to press on toward the goal for the calling on high of God in Christ Jesus. That's the desiring part, to press on through tribulation and challenges. He said in Philippians 3, 12-16, Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. That's what we should be aspiring to. Though we all fall short of the glory of God. Paul said, I'm forgetting the things behind me, and I'm stretching out and straining. I'm aspiring for the things in front of me. And we're not trying to be more authentic in our spiritual assessment than the Apostle Paul's own assessment of his own spiritual state. You'll remember on the one hand, he said, in Romans seven fourteen to 20, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
He recognizes as the Apostle Paul, the leader in the church, the reality of sinfulness, the reality of making and struggling with sinful choices. And again in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the first one to acknowledge that truth, he's saying. And yet, <laughs> and yet on the other hand, he writes in 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear and transparent conscience. And again, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. What's going on here? It's not the measure of Paul's accomplishments in mastering the list in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 that allows him to say, I serve God with a clear and transparent conscience. It's not that he's mastered the list, but the setting of his will to desire to do the will of God, to aspire to do his will, that allows him to say he serves with a clear and transparent conscience even though he recognizes his sinfulness. His conscience is clear because that is his sincerest desire. That's how Martin Lloyd-Jones can confess that truth to his congregation, because the reality is that we're all desperate and undeserving sinners, elders included. And acknowledging that we aspire to serve God is a critical component to correctly assessing how we can meet Paul's requirement to be blameless, irreproachable elders. And so I'm asking you to weigh out the personal cost of this great calling, you men, and to serve God in this capacity and take on the incredible challenge of leading and nurturing and comforting and establishing and feeding God's people. Remember this, men of God are those who desire to be authentic all the time, but are still uncovering areas in their lives where they are weak and sinful. Don't be waylaid by the list that Paul uses there in 1 Timothy, but seriously consider the call to be irreproachable. So, seek after God's kingdom. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. Fight the good fight of faith. Go after it earnestly, confessing your sin, repenting and seeking to correct it, growing in grace as you do. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge the greatness of your word and the challenge before us. Father, thank you for the conviction that Paul had of the necessity of strengthening and establishing the souls in the congregations by finding men who are good leaders. Father, help us to be people that encourage men to be great leaders, competent leaders, spiritual leaders in our congregations. Help us to be people and families and children and wives to encourage our husbands and fathers as well. Father, we ask that these words uh, are applied to each one of our hearts as we consider these things. 
And we thank you for your grace and your mercy in Christ Jesus. Amen.